0: Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Talladega, Alabama. First Baptist Church exists to glorify God by loving Him, loving others, and making disciples in Talladega and around the world. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, will you join me again in the book of Romans, chapter 1? Romans chapter 1 this morning, we'll read verses 6 and 7. Including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you now, it is our prayer that you would now speak to us through the reading and the preaching of your word. Father, even as we have just read this passage and already see sort of where we're headed this morning, I know and am keenly aware this morning that I am insufficient for this task as ever. But Father, your word is all sufficient to accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth. So we trust you. We trust the authority of your word. We trust the power of your Holy Spirit working through your word and its preaching. And we submit now to you and your spirit and your word. Lord, would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you challenge us where we need to be challenged? Would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged? Would you remind us of truths of which we need to be reminded even this morning? Father, we pray that as you speak to us, you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to obey. Use me now as your mouthpiece. Fill my mouth with your words And not my own. We, your people, pray all of these things knowing that we need to hear from you. We pray them in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The Lord's Supper ought to cause us to think, to reflect, to consider the sacrifice of Christ but also to consider our own salvation. Not only that Christ died for our sins, but that Christ died for my sins. Not only that he died on a cross, but that he died on my cross. Not only that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, but that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of my sins. I want to ask you this morning as we begin to think back on the day, if you can remember it, when God called you to salvation. When you first responded in repentance and faith to the calling of God from death to life in your heart. Do you remember that day? For me, I, I remember the the moment uh, when I first uh, as, as my mom and I have talked about this in, in recent years, the moment when I first sort of began to grasp the gospel, I had a Sunday school teacher named Miss Deedee. And Miss Deedee, every morning when she would, every Sunday morning when she would begin our Sunday school class, uh, I, I think it was the kindergarten and first grade class maybe. Uh, it might have been pre-K and and uh, K-5, I, I don't really quite remember that detail. I remember about how old I was. And I remember that every morning when she would begin on Sunday, she would begin with prayer. And in that prayer, she would include what we sort of commonly know as the sinner's prayer. And I remember coming home one day and saying that I, I recognized that, that that I needed to do that. And uh, sort of doing it uh, myself uh, in my own head and in my own heart and uh, later uh, that summer after first grade uh, while I was in vacation Bible school my teacher named Mrs. Baldwin shared the gospel with us and I knew and I understood and I trusted in Christ so I'm a big fan of children's Sunday school and I love vacation Bible school that's my uh, personal testimony I want you to think about yours this morning I want you to think and recall that Uh, as you were sitting there, whether as an adult or as a child, that it was no matter of great intelligence that you figured things out. It was not any amount of good behavior that sort of gave you salvation's gold star. It was simply that you, like the hymn says, were once blind, but all of a sudden you could see. You had heard the gospel perhaps many, many times before that day, or maybe it was the very first time you heard it. But if you grew up in this region of the country, most likely you'd heard it many, many times. But for some reason, on that day, your eyes were opened. By the grace of God, you trusted and believed. You didn't try to clean up your act or pick yourself up by your bootstraps or any such thing. But you trusted that Jesus died on a cross for your sins and rose again, that you could have life eternal. And your eyes now open to that truth. You believed it. This passage, it is this very calling by which the Apostle Paul identifies believers. He calls them called. Called ones. And so we are, as Christians, called ones. As we consider this passage this morning, you and I need to marvel at the grace of God, even as we think back on our own testimonies, on our own relationship with Christ, on that moment for us when our eyes were first opened to see and our ears opened to hear by the grace of God, the truth of the gospel, and called out of death and into life, we must marvel at the grace of God, that he should call us to belong to Jesus And call us to be saints of God. We'll divide the text into three parts this morning, three points. If you're following along and taking notes, uh, you can go ahead and number one, two, three, Roman numerals, one, two, and three. However you want to do this, all three of these will begin with the word called. So you can go ahead and fill that word in if you'd like. But our first truth that we encounter this morning from verse six about our identity as called ones is that we are called to belong. Called to belong. Verse 6, Paul writes, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, he begins with this term, including you, which of course beckons us back to verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you. This including you links back to verse 5 to include Paul's audience there in Rome as some of those who had heard the gospel had believed the gospel and to the praise of God's glorious grace were now believers in Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul said that he'd been commissioned to preach the gospel to the nations so that God would be glorified as people came to faith in Christ and he says including you. These believers in Rome had also trusted in Jesus. They had been saved by God's grace, and so they were, to the glory of God, now believers. Then he refers to them as called. The reason the statement in verse 5 can include those in Rome is because they were called ones. Just like all of those who had heard the gospel and believed it, so too were those in Rome called ones. This is the central word in the passage. It recurs in the next verse, verse 7 as well. And that will serve as our main point of focus throughout our time together this morning. You may have noticed that the title of this morning's sermon is simply that. Called. Called. Now again, we need to understand that in the introduction of this letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul is introducing concepts for us that will be handled in much greater detail later in the letter. So all of your questions this morning may not quite be answered yet, but we'll get there. Now, I also realize that we're going to get there rather slowly, and it may be years before all of your questions are answered, but we will get there. We are merely introducing concepts this morning and seeking to understand them as best we can from the passage that we are studying this morning. The word in Greek is kletoi from the root kletos, which literally means, you guessed it, Called. In most of your English translations, every single time this word occurs, it is translated to our English word called. That's what it means. It's straightforward. It's rather simple. This is not one of those words where we would say we don't quite have an English word sufficient or equivalent to sort of grasp exactly what we're talking about. No, this pretty much sums it up. You are called. Sometimes this word is used in scripture to refer to the calling of an apostle. Paul uses this about his own calling as an apostle, but again, most of the time, the word is used to identify believers, as is the case here, and to identify believers as those who have been called to salvation by the grace of God. Perhaps the most telling and revealing passage that gives us a clear example of what the Apostle Paul is talking about here and how he is using this word is found in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. If you've got your Bible still open, I hope you do. Go almost all the way to the right to the book of Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14, and if you hit the table of contents, you've gone a little too far. Revelation chapter 17, verse 14 says this about believers, about the saints of God. They... Believe, or excuse me, they, that is, those coming against God, those enemies of God, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him, so believers now, are called and chosen and faithful. All three of those are weighty words. All three of those words are used to describe, to identify Christians, to identify saints, to identify believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, called and chosen and faithful. Throughout the scripture, this word called is used to identify Christians and it is used that way because believers believe because they have been called So you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, can be identified this way, as called ones. You, Christian, are a Christian because you have been called. It is who you are. It is your very identity. That's why Paul uses it as an identifying statement here. You are who you are in Jesus Christ because you were called. You have been called out of sin and into righteousness. You have been called out of death and into life. You've been called out of blindness and into sight. You've been called out of darkness and into marvelous light. You have been called by the grace of God out of lostness and into salvation. Now, there are two, keys, two key realities about this call that we'll understand better later in this letter, later in our study of the book of Romans, that we need to introduce them now. This call is both what we would call unconditional and effectual. Those are terms you may or may not be familiar with, uh, but we'll walk through both of them fairly briefly. The second one we'll spend a little more time on. This call is unconditional, first of all. That means that this call of God to salvation is by grace and grace alone. In Latin we say sola gratia, by grace alone. That means it is not based on you meeting any condition of worthiness or deservedness. It is freely a gift of God's grace. And praise the Lord that it is. Because if there were any condition, any condition that I needed to meet in order to be saved, first of all, it would not be a free gift. But second of all, and more alarmingly, I would never, ever meet it. If God were to attach any condition that I needed to meet, any standard I needed to conform to, any list of things I needed to accomplish in order to be saved, it would not be grace, and I would not meet that standard. But praise God, this calling from lostness and sin and death and darkness and into salvation and life and light is by grace alone, unconditional upon me meeting any condition. We find this truth in the previous verse. We find this truth in the next verse. We find this truth throughout the book of Romans. We find this truth throughout the scriptures that praise God, your calling to salvation is freely given, without condition, God does not look at you and decide that there is enough merit in you worth saving. Enough faint righteousness even in you that is worth saving. Enough of a glimmer of spiritual life that he can make up the difference. God looks at you, poor, pitiable, lost, dead in sin. Saves by his grace and his grace alone. Secondly, this calling to salvation is effectual. That means simply that this call of God to salvation is effective to bring salvation about. It is effectual unto salvation. It works. When God calls, it works. When God calls you to salvation, you are saved. God's grace is sufficient for your salvation. God's grace accomplishes your salvation. Paul writes as simply and as straightforward a fact as we could read. That the reason we have believed the gospel to the glory of God, verse 5, and the reason we belong to Jesus, as the end of verse 6 tells us, is because God called us to belong to Jesus by His grace. The reason you came to faith in Jesus is because the Father drew you to faith in Jesus, not because of anything inherent in you. Christian, you are not a Christian because you are more intelligent than those around you. It is because God called. You are not a Christian because you had some sort of increased spiritual mindedness. It is because God called. You are not a Christian because you were filled with all manner of religious proclivities. It's because God called. You are not a Christian because of any manner of self righteousness within you. It is because God called. He has done this. He has saved you. In John six forty four, Jesus writes this about as bluntly as we could read it. Go back to the left if you're in Romans, and go way to the left if you were still in Revelation, John chapter six, verse forty four. You may be familiar with this simple, straightforward statement from Jesus describing this calling John 6:44 No one can come to me Jesus says unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on that last day Do you notice both of these truths there in that passage It is unconditional No one's coming to me. Not unless God does something. No one's coming to me because they had an increased righteousness. No one's coming to me because they were more intelligent. No one's coming to me because they were more religious. No one. No one comes unless unless the Father who sent me draws him. But then do you notice how effectual it is? And I will raise him up On the last day. Do you notice the guarantee that Jesus gives? The one-to-one connection. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Why does he do that? He does it by grace. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. No one seeks after God. But the Father draws us, and what happens? Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. Brothers and sisters, this is what we mean when we say, I got saved. Have you ever noticed that when you talk about your salvation, you don't say, I saved myself? Now that, that may sound a little silly. I know it sort of grates against the ear. Maybe part of that is that we just don't say it, and so it sounds unfamiliar. But the other is because it just isn't true. I didn't save myself. You and I know this. I didn't save myself by saying magic words. I didn't save myself by cleaning up my act. I didn't save myself by going through any religious ritual. I got saved because who saved me? God saved me. We use these passive terms because we didn't do it ourselves. He saved us. This is not a new concept for the Apostle Paul. He is already in Romans chapter 1 beckoned back to the Old Testament but he is beckoning back even to an Old Testament concept here go with me to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel chapter 36 I want to show you this as an Old Testament promise about what God will do what he promises to do in the new covenant Ezekiel chapter 36 and we'll read verses 26 and 27 this is the promise that God makes through the prophet Ezekiel about what he's going to do when the Savior the Messiah comes now we know that to be fulfilled in Christ. Notice what was promised even beforehand. Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You may have known someone, or at least heard of someone, who needed a heart transplant. Not heart surgery, heart transplant. You've perhaps known a lot more people who've needed heart surgery of some kind. When heart surgery is necessary, it is because there's damage, there's a condition, something needs to be repaired. But the old heart still has enough good in it to be salvaged. Repairs are still able to be made. Things can be cleaned out, cleaned up, and get to working at least mostly right. Heart surgery is necessary. When a heart transplant is necessary, it is because there is nothing salvageable in the old heart. There is no amount of diet, exercise, medication that could ever correct what is wrong. The only hope is for the old heart to be removed and to be replaced with a new one. This is the way the Bible describes your sinful condition. There's not enough righteousness, not enough religious medication, not enough religious diet or exercise that you could participate in to clean up your heart. There is nothing salvageable in the sinner's dead heart. What is required is a total heart transplant. But the good news of the gospel and the promise that the prophet Ezekiel makes about when the Messiah comes is that he will come to make heart transplants. To remove those hearts that are dead in sin and replace them with living hearts. New hearts. His own spirit placed within you. Removing the heart of stone from your flesh and giving you a heart of flesh so that you will believe and respond in repentance and faith. It is God who places this new believing heart in us by calling us to salvation. If you are familiar with the parable of the sower or what is sometimes called the parable of the soils, you will recall that Jesus talks about a a farmer who goes out to sow seed and as he does, some falls along the path. thats That hard, stony ground that utterly rejects the gospel, wants nothing to do with it, and it's snatched up by the birds of the air. Other seed falls along ground that is shallow and filled with rock so that the roots don't go down very deep. And though the plant sprouts up and appears to have life, at the first sign of trouble it falls over. This is the faith that is shallow, superficial, it's not real. They prove so by falling away. Other seed falls along ground that is filled with thorns and weeds. And though the plant grows up and might appear healthy and may even send down deep roots, it is choked out by the weeds and the thorns. And this, Jesus says, is the heart of the one who won't repent of his sin. And though he might profess faith in Christ because he doesn't repent of his sin, eventually it too is choked out and proven to be false. But then there's the good soil. And there the seed grows and sends down deep roots. And the plant grows and bears fruit. This, Jesus says, is the heart of the believer... Roots go down deep, roots of genuine faith. Faith sprouts and grows and bears much fruit in the life of the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you and remind you, brothers and sisters, of something you knew the moment you were saved and that you knew that moment that you thought back to even this morning, but you may have forgotten somewhere along the way. That there was no point in time when you looked at the soil of your own heart, hard packed as it was, and decided, you know what, I need to till this soil and pull some weeds and make this soil ready so that when I hear the gospel, I can believe it and respond to it. It is God who melts the heart of stone and makes it a heart of good soil. We may read that parable of the sower or the parable of the soils and say, how is it that I could go from someone who rejects the gospel utterly and completely or someone who has made a false profession without repentance or without deeply rooted faith? How could I go from that person to someone who believes and has good, true, abiding, saving faith that bears much fruit? And brothers and sisters, let me remind you that it is no credit that that is due to you. It is all the transformative work of God to do this in your heart. Think of the terms we use to describe the work of God's grace in that favorite old hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was what? Lost, but then I found myself. No. I once was lost, but now am found. It's a passive word. He found you and saved you. I was blind. Then I opened my eyes. No. I was blind. But now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. Even in that old hymn, we sing of the reality that we used to look at our sin and revel in it. And then one day, for some reason, our hearts broke when we looked at our sinful condition. And we feared the eternal consequences. What caused your heart to fear? Grace. And what relieved that fear? Grace again. My fears relieved. You cannot answer unless you are called. But may I remind you that a dead man cannot answer unless that call brings with it life. Think back to the account of Lazarus dead in the tomb. Jesus is warned that by now his body stinks. He's been dead for days. But Jesus, seeing the weeping of his friends and himself even shedding tears, approaches the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. In that account, we do not read of someone who was lying dead in a tomb who decided that when he heard Jesus calling, he would wake himself up from death and walk out of the tomb. We read of a dead man who, when Jesus called, was able to walk out because that call brought life where there was none. So, too, Christian, you were dead in the tomb of sin. Days dead since birth. Jesus approached the doorway of your tomb and did not say, if you would like to be saved, repeat after me. If you would like to save yourself, clean up your act. If you would like things to go better, try harder next time. Jesus approached the doorway where you were entombed in your sin and said, Come forth. And his call brought life to a dead sinner. Specifically, we are told that believers are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That call to salvation comes from the Father, and having been called by the Father, we now belong to Jesus. We are His own. In John 6, 37-40, Jesus Himself describes it this way, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will not, I will never, Jesus says, cast out. When God calls, we belong to Jesus he will not cast us out. Jesus continues, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see God's grace overflowing abundantly from what Jesus is saying? You were once dead in your trespasses and sins but by the grace of God and only the grace of God he called you to life out of sin and he called you to respond in belief and faith and repentance in Jesus and having heard his call and having been brought to life miraculously by his call so you believed and repented and trusted and Jesus says now you are mine and I will keep you unto the end. You are his now. You have been called to belong to Jesus. You have been called to follow after Jesus. You have been called to worship Jesus. You have been called to be Jesus' own sheep. You've been called to be his. Following this statement of identity as called, there are two more descriptive statements that are also given identifying the Christians in Rome and by extension all believers. We are loved by God and called to be saints. So let's talk secondly about what it means to be called by love. We've been called to belong. We are called by love. Look at the first half of verse 7, which says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God. The call of God to salvation is rooted in his love for us and only in his love for us. With the focus now squarely on God in this opening section, you will note that Paul never mentions in these verses the believer's love for God. Though it is there, we'll talk about it in just a moment, he doesn't ever mention it. He doesn't identify them as the ones who love God. He identifies them as those beloved of God. Because what becomes critical in their identity, what has made them who they are, is that God has loved them. The call of God to salvation comes to us not because we are lovely, but because God loves us. Because we are beloved of Him. It comes only because of His undeserved love for us. 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It is God's love alone that is the sufficient basis for our calling to salvation. We might ask next, we ought to ask next, why has he called me? If we say that Jesus stood at the doorway of our hearts and like he did to Lazarus, commanded that a dead sinner should come forth, that his call brought with it life, spiritual life, as he beckoned us to repentance and faith if we say, as we should, that this calling comes only by His grace, we might ask, why? Why would God look at me and decide to call me? Why would God look and know all of the sinful things I would do? All of the sinful words I would say. All of the sinful thoughts I would think. All of the sinful motivations that would guide my life until the moment that He called me. Why would He look at my life and yet call me to salvation out of sin? The answer is only found in His love. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6, one of the most beautiful and beautifully detailed passages about this calling, reminds us that it is only based on His love. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Do you notice the word that becomes the climax of that theological explanation of God's miraculous, gracious call to salvation? It is the word love. What results from our hearts then is a love for God that results from His love for us He has called us only because he loves us, and now we love him because he first loved us. This is what John writes in 1 John 4, 19, you know it, we love because he first loved us. Can I remind you, brothers and sisters, of a joyous truth, that even your salvation finds its basis not in your love for him, but in his love for you if your salvation were based entirely on your love for him, you would still be lost. But we love him because he first loved us. We were blind and hateful and sinful and rebellious. But he made us to see and called us his own and made us alive. And having loved us, He taught us to love him. His love for us is undeserved in its very definition. And it is indescribable in its extent. That you and I are called by his love is a clear testimony to the wonders of his love. That he could love us. That he would love us when we were absolutely unlovable and make us his own is absolutely, fundamentally astounding. The parable of the lost sheep reminds us of it well. The parable of the lost sheep demonstrates the love of God for us. You remember the parable. Jesus said there's a shepherd who left 99 of his sheep in the fold and went after one who was lost. The love of God is so astounding that he would come to get us Consider the difference between a shepherd accepting us back into the fold when we find our way back to him versus the astounding love of a shepherd who would risk his own life to go and find the sheep that was lost. How did the sheep end up lost in the first place? We must believe, based on the parable and based even on the character of Christ as we see him reflected in the parable, that it was not because of the carelessness of the shepherd. It was not as if this were, it's not described as a wild sheep that had sort of always been out there and Jesus was just, the shepherd was just made aware of it and goes to get it. It's a lost sheep. It belongs to him, but it's not where it's supposed to be. How does that happen? Not because of the carelessness of the shepherd but because of the rebelliousness of the sheep. It is because the sheep did not follow. It is because the sheep went his own way. It is because the sheep would not listen to the voice of the shepherd. And again, as you think about yourself in the shoes, as it were, of that sheep, remember that that was you. That was you. The reason you were lost was not because your shepherd was careless, it was because you were rebellious. It's because you didn't want to be in the fold. You wanted to be in the world. You didn't want to listen to the voice of your shepherd. You wanted to listen to your own sheepish voice in your sheepish head. And go your own sheepish way. You listen to the flesh and its lusts. You listen to the allure of the world. The shepherd's love for you was so astounding that even in your rebelliousness, lost though you were because of your own rebellious heart, he did not sit back at the sheep pen and say, well, if he finds his way back, I'll take him in, which would have been love astounding enough. But he came and rescued you because he loved you. Because he loved you. Lastly, we are called to be saints. The same verb, called, is used again. This time the word saints is added at the end of verse 7, and called to be saints. It describes the state to which we have been called. The word here literally means holy ones or set apart ones. Now, colloquially, we sort of use the word saint, don't we, to describe what uh, one teenager one time called super-Christians. These are people who are sort of above and beyond. We might think back to historic Roman Catholic doctrine and think, well, the saints have to achieve sainthood. They have to do some great thing, perform some miracle, something to be saints. They're set apart even from us mere Christians. They are saints. Even as Protestants who would reject that, uh, that system and that way of thinking, that way of understanding, even we who know the biblical definition that all believers are saints, even sometimes we use this colloquially to say, well, oh, she's such a saint. She's an absolute saint. What we mean by that is that, well, you know, us mere mortals just try to follow Jesus, but that person has got it down. That's not what this means at all. The word saint, when it's used in Scripture, uses it to identify all believers, every single one. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ in this room this morning, you are a saint, you are a holy one. You are one set apart from the world and unto God. You have been made so by God's grace. You've been made positionally holy in Christ. When we talk about our justification by faith, that's what we're talking about. That your legal standing before the throne of God has been changed from guilty, condemned sinner to innocent, righteous heir of the kingdom. And that has only happened because Jesus has washed clean your sins by his blood and given you his own righteousness as a free gift to change your legal standing as a free gift of his grace. That comes only by faith. But now, brothers and sisters, you are called to live that out in pursuit of holiness by spirit-empowered sanctification. When we talk about sanctification, we're talking about that daily process of your daily walk whereby daily you reject sin more and more and pursue righteousness and personal holiness more and more. And that, Paul says, is what you have been called to. So you have been called out of sin and death and into life and righteousness, but you don't simply change legal standing and then sit there. Jesus has called you, God has called you to be a saint, to be a holy one, to be a set apart one. That is to begin a relationship with Christ by grace through faith, yes, but now to walk in that newness of life that is yours by grace through faith. You've been set apart from the old ways of sin. You've been set apart from the wickedness of this world. You've been set apart to belong to God and to walk faithfully with Him in His ways. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 7 says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. God has called us to be holy. 1 Peter 1.15 again states it rather bluntly. But as He who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. Now does that mean we'll be sinless? Not this side of heaven. But it does mean that by God's gracious work of his spirit, we will pursue daily personal holiness as we live set apart from this world and unto God. You were not called to salvation, Christian, in order to remain the same. To go back to our illustration of Lazarus, I don't imagine that Lazarus was ever the same. Dead for days and raised to life by Jesus himself. I cannot imagine that his life was ever the same after that. So too it is with you. Who have been called out of the death of sin and into life in Christ, your life is not the same anymore. You weren't called to salvation to remain the same. You were called to salvation to be set apart as God's own, as Jesus' follower, as his own sheep, as his. And you were called to live your life unto him. Can I ask you a poignant question? Are you living like a saint? Are you living like one who has been called to live set apart from the world and unto him? Because my fear, brothers and sisters, is that far too often we would like to blend in with the world rather well. We would like to have eternal fire insurance as it is often called. We would like to be called out of death into life, but don't call me to much more because that means I can't have all this fun that the world is having. Brothers and sisters, I must remind you that if your heart still lusts after the things of this world, Is because you are still dead in your sin. When God calls us, he calls us to be set apart. He doesn't call us because we are set apart. We don't become believers by walking in righteousness, but when we believe, when he calls us to life, we live. When God calls you to be his, this is the transforming work he does in you. He's called you from death to life. Are you living Are you spiritually alive and living out that spiritual life? Paul concludes in the final portion of verse 7, and we'll conclude there as well, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a fairly traditional greeting. As he concludes his introduction and prepares to move us into the first dialogue, the first discussion, It's a familiar greeting to us. If you've read any of the epistles, you're familiar with even some of this very same phrasing. But in this fairly standard greeting, we are met with and reminded of some important truths, some important reminders even about the critical concepts that we've looked at in these two verses. We're reminded that grace is the basis of our calling to salvation. That it is a free gift. Maybe you're here this morning, and for the first time, you walked in here blind, but now you see. Grace has taught your heart to fear, and you see your sinfulness and wonder, what must I do to be saved? Salvation is available to you as a free gift by grace alone. God does not say, you have to do this, this, and this, and this, and this to earn it. He calls and he saves. And he does it freely. We are reminded that peace is the result of our salvation. Paul is communicating here more than just the absence of conflict. It's a wholeness, a complete harmony in life. And specifically now, life lived in relationship with God as opposed to the enmity we used to have with him. Romans 5.1, we'll talk about this later. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you were once a rebel against his kingdom, an enemy of his, deserving of condemnation, disregarding his law, and spitting in the face of his holiness, deciding to go your own way. But by his gracious calling, he has made peace. We are reminded that the source of our calling is God the Father, who by his grace, well, calls us. You'll note that Paul's introduction doesn't make much of the reader at all. But it makes much of God. It makes much of the God who saved the reader. He he does the same thing in Ephesians 1. We read some of Ephesians 1 a moment ago. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, before he launches into that passage that we read that details theologically and yet almost in song, the grace of God to save. Paul cries out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Later in Ephesians 2, when he talks about us being dead and our sins and God's grace to save us. Immediately after saying that you were dead and your trespasses and sins, worthy of condemnation as were we all, he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God is the source of your calling and salvation. And finally, we are reminded here that the Lord Jesus Christ is the means of our salvation. We celebrated that in partaking of the Lord's Supper just this morning. The means of your salvation and mine is not our own work. It's not our attempts at good works. It's not our self-righteous thoughts about our own works. It is only the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The means of your salvation is Jesus' own work. And all there is for you to do is to believe and to trust. In his broken body, having, having taken your place, in his blood shed for the atonement of your sins, Jesus has done all the work necessary for your salvation. And having completed that work, he cried out, it is finished. So that he and his work upon the cross are the means of our salvation. Your salvation and mine is not accomplished by our work, it is definitively accomplished by his. So, when you and I consider God's gracious call upon our lives to bring us out of death and sin and into life in Christ, we, brothers and sisters, cannot but marvel at His grace. Perhaps some of you here today need to respond to that gracious call and repentance and faith. Others of you this morning have responded, you've trusted you were alive today because God called, may I invite you to worship him in thankfulness and praise. Let's pray together. Father, as we have considered the weightiness and the wonder of your great grace, words fail us. Perhaps no other words are sufficient. Then thank you. All praise to you, the God of our salvation. We praise you for what you have done in calling us from death to life by your grace, in saving us, sinners though we were. Make us this morning abundantly thankful. In Christ's name, amen.